We often remark, but I think it's worth repeating, that for our culture, the reality of the judgment of God is an uncomfortable topic. When we think about talking about God being judge, and that one day he will judge the world, right, that, there's an awkwardness in our culture because, frankly, we just don't like thinking about the, the hardness of God being the judge. And it's not, that's not to say that we're not a culture that's passionate for justice. I mean, again, just look at the news this week. I mean, we're, people are passionate for justice, to see justice done. And when we don't think justice is, has been done, uh, you know, it, it, things can get uh, pretty, pretty dicey pretty quickly. We're all about judgment. We're just, not about, we're just not about God judging us. Can I get an amen, <laughs> right? It's like, I'm all good for you to judge them. You know, pull over that guy when he's speeding, but let me leave me alone, right, when I'm the one speeding. And frankly, our culture has that allergy to thinking about God as judge because we don't like the idea of being accountable for our choices, or we might say accountable for our sin. So in the midst of that, here we are going through First and Second Kings. And I know some of you are like, Pastor Ryan, what are you doing? We are in First and Second Kings. Like, these books are so crazy. They're so unusual. The historical focus uh, of, of God trying to call his people to repentance and faith in the midst of their idolatry, it doesn't line up with where our culture is. And maybe that's all the reason more we need to look at these books. Because hasn't that been the message in First and Second Kings over and over again? God keeps calling his people, quit with the idols, repent, turn back to me. And we see over and over the evidence of God's faithfulness and his goodness. And at the same time, he keeps warning, repent or else. Repent or else. Turn back to me or else. And the or else has been judgment. That God would ultimately remove his people from the land that he gave them in the first place. Now, when it comes to the or else, like there's a warning, like repent or else. Or, you know, in our house, clean your room or else, right? That warning is only as good as the person who makes it. Can I get an amen on that? Yes? Uh, some of you are grandparents. Your or, your or else isn't worth that much. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, some of you, some of you maybe. Some of you maybe. But, but you need to go back to grandparent school, I think, you know, in that one. I was thinking about... I was thinking about my parents being grandparents, and they're like, clean your room, or else I'll give you candy. Like, no, you know, it doesn't work. It's not how it works, you know. Anyway, now parents, there should be a little more muscle behind that or else, right? Your, the or else is only as good as whoever gives it. God's or else is no joke. It's not funny. When God says, repent or else... As he said to Israel, the northern kingdom, Israel refused to repent. They were taken into exile. He followed through on that judgment. God has said to Judah here in the latter part of 2 Kings, repent or else. And this morning we're going to come to the or else. God's or else is no joke. And if there's no muscle behind it, then there's no need for the gospel. If God is not going to judge... If there is no ultimate reckoning, then there's no need for the gospel. There's no urgency in the mission to communicate the gospel to others. If there's no or else, then God is a liar and unfaithful. If there's no or else, then it doesn't matter how we respond to his word. If there's no or else, then there really is no true justice. 
So this morning, as we get into 2 Kings 24, I just want to ask you, how have you responded to God's call to repent or else? Has there been meaningful change in your life? Many of us would say, yes, I have repented and I have believed in Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. But maybe right now you're living like you haven't. Maybe there are pockets of resistance, pockets of rebellion against the Lord, pockets of idolatry and compromise. Maybe some of us are here this morning and we have never believed. We've never repented. In fact, when push comes to shove, we would say that when God says repent or else, he doesn't mean it. Or at least we're going to bank our eternity on the fact that he doesn't mean it. Now listen, there's instruction for all of us this morning in 2 Kings 24. Because as we see the or else come into, into being, we also are going to get some encouragement that this isn't the end of the story. So if you have your Bibles there, let's pick it up here in 2 Kings 24, verse 1. We'll cover the whole chapter here. Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim's reign. So uh, verse 1 of chapter 24. During Jehoiakim's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked. Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years, and then he turned and rebelled against him. If we pause there, we were introduced to Jehoiakim last uh, week in chapter 23 at the end. Uh, he was the second son of Josiah, and he was installed as a king uh, by Pharaoh Necho. And so he was installed as a puppet king, and he was an evil king. In fact, this guy was really bad. If you read the, the book of Jeremiah, he's the, he's the main bad guy in Jeremiah in, in several sections. He's the guy that uh, kills prophets. He's the guy that uh, when Jeremiah wrote the scroll of the word of God and delivered it to him through his assistant, King Jehoiakim burned that scroll. He burned the word of God. So this guy was not a good king. And so during his reign, this is 605 BC actually, we know King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked Judah. And so Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years and then he turned and rebelled against Babylon. Now, just pausing right here again in verse 1. Jehoiakim was installed by the Egyptians, and then he, uh, the Babylonians are now the new power. So they've replaced the Egyptians, and he, uh, was it, they were attacked. You know, he, they took the first wave of exiles. Actually, Daniel was taken into exile in 605 B.C. Jehoiakim stayed behind, and he, he was loyal to the Babylonians now as a puppet king for them for three years, and then he decided to rebel. The question is, why would he do that? Well, he was pro-Egypt, and there's all kinds of political reasons. Maybe he thought they could muscle their way out with an alliance and get freedom. But at the end of the day, behind all of what goes on geopolitically in this chapter, the hand of God is at work. Jehoiakim rebels because God is making good on his or else. That's why. Watch verse 2. Note the language. The Lord sent Chaldean Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against Jehoiakim. He sent them against Judah to destroy it. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. If you just again pause here in verse 2, the authors of Kings want us to know the reason why these people groups attacked. The reason why the Babylonians authorized these attacks against Judah was not merely because of some geopolitical mechanics at work. It was because God was judging Judah for their sin. 
This is an uncomfortable truth. You need to know that God does not fool around with sin and idolatry in our lives. It's not a laughing matter. It's not a joke. It's not a small thing. And we need to take it seriously because he takes it seriously. He promised he would send this judgment, and he did. Verse 3, we get further explanation. Indeed, just so we're all clear, this happened to Judah at the Lord's command to remove them from his presence. It was because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. And also because of all the innocent blood he had shed. He had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. And the Lord was not willing to forgive. Those words should make you uncomfortable. The fact is, this sin had been going on for generations. Manasseh was the worst of the kings of Judah. And so his sin was like highlighted here, but that was simply the cumulative effect of their unbelief and their idolatry. And so at the Lord's command, he allowed Babylon to attack Judah. Why? To remove them from his presence, he says. And the Lord was not willing to forgive, right? You know, our culture wants to convince us and convince you that, you know what, being uptight about sin, this whole Bible thing, it's just, don't get too serious about it. It's not that big of a deal. And when you get that vibe at Starbucks, when you're feeling that, you know, pressure at your university class or college class, when, when you're being told that you shouldn't take this so seriously by your family members, right, this week at your Thanksgiving celebration, you just need to remember that God's opinion is more important than theirs. The main reason we're going to be tempted to agree with our culture is because, frankly, we don't want to take our own sin seriously enough. Now, verse 5, the rest of the events of Jehoiakim's reign, along with all of his accomplishments, those are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. Jehoiakim rested with his ancestors, right? He died, and his son Jehoiakim became, became king in his place. Now the king of Egypt did not march out of his land again, for the king of Babylon took everything that had belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates River. That's just a historical detail there to show us that Babylon was more important now than Egypt. And I know you want to see it, so let's show you the map so you can get a, get a good feed on it. So uh, here you go, Euphrates River, Babylonian Empire, all the way down to Egypt, to the brook of Egypt. So they're, they're the world superpower now, right? They're, they're, the, they're the authority but in this passage, Babylon, the most powerful military of its time, is a servant to do God's will. It's just important for us to keep that in mind. What does God use them to do here in these first seven verses? To attack Judah, to remove them from his presence. Why? Because sin results in separation from God. This is one of those fundamental messages throughout the Bible. Sin results in separation from God. Sin does create that barrier between us, the created beings, who are meant to reign over the earth in God's image, right? As kings and queens in his stead, right? We are, we are sinners, and therefore there's a separation between us and between God. And here God says, I have to deal with you, Judah. I have to send Babylon to attack you, Judah, because you have refused to repent and turn back to me. You've refused to call your idolatry what it is. 
Again, it's uncomfortable, but we have to say it. Sin results in separation from God. This is not new. We could go all the way back to the Garden in Eden. And here are Adam and Eve, and they listen to the lie of the serpent when the serpent says, oh yeah, God's just trying to be, a, he's just a killjoy. He's trying to prevent you from having fun and doing what everybody else is doing and making the cool kids cool. They were the only kids, just work with me here, right, on the, on the analogy. But the, the, Satan's lie to them was, God is trying to prevent you from fulfillment. So yes, you should take that fruit and you should eat it. And when they did that, believing that lie, that God did not have their best interest at heart, that he was not good, Right? When they did that, what happened? They were banished from the garden. You're out. No longer could they walk with God in the cool of the day. No longer did they have that intimate fellowship because now, now sin had separated them from God. Listen, this, this is so important that we understand this. Biblically speaking, sin results in separation from God, and that is true for everyone. Sin separates us from God. Now, of course, we understand that would be true before we come to faith in Jesus. In your pre-Jesus days, you are separate from God in that you are not reconciled to God. We'll talk more about that later as we work through the chapter. But even as believers, sometimes there's a subjective sense when we are making sinful choices, when we are tolerating compromise in our lives, when we're letting things go that we know we shouldn't let go, right? Practically speaking, when we do that, we feel far from God. Do you know why you feel that way? Because sin separates us from God. Sin results in separation from God because that's a result of sin. And when we are harboring sin in our lives, when we're tolerating sin in our lives, well, we are going to feel far from God. How could we not feel far from God? It would be weird if we didn't feel far from God. The fact is, it would be dangerous if you're tolerating sin and you didn't feel that, that distance from God. So what about you? Do you feel far from God this morning? Oftentimes, I, I talk with people and the struggle is, Lord, uh, Pastor Ryan, I don't feel close to the Lord. I feel like the Lord is far from me at this moment. And a hundred out of a hundred times, the problem in that situation is not with the Lord. Right? It's with us. You know, once in our marriage, I let Lindsay down. One time. I've been married 21 years. Once. She never lets me forget it either. I'll tell you what. Uh, one time I let her down. And um, we were in the, you know, and husbands, just work with me, right? You're in the same room as your spouse, but there is separation between you and your spouse. Can I get an amen, brothers? Yeah. I blew it, and I knew it. And we may have been physically in close proximity, but we were far apart in that room. Because that's what sin does. It breaks the relationship. Right? It causes the problem creates the gulf. And that's what happens to us in the Lord. You say, Pastor Ryan, I don't feel very close to the Lord. I would say you need to look in your life and you need to find out where are you harboring sin? Where are you tolerating compromise? Which idols are your favorites that you're not willing to let go? You need to confess them for what they are. There's also an important question here when God says he was not willing to forgive because of their sin? And I said those are scary words. They are scary words. There's a question here. Is God's grace available indefinitely? Is God's grace available indefinitely? And listen, brothers and sisters, we know the Lord is patient. Again, can I get an amen? The Lord is patient. In fact, in his word, he tells us he is slow to anger. 
He's abounding in loving kindness. The Lord is patient regarding the day of destruction. He is, he is allowing time for sinners to respond to the good news. And he is doing that work of calling them into his kingdom. So the Lord is patient. But that patience will not last forever. And so sometimes, again, with tolerating our sin, we get too comfortable with it, and we think, yeah, I'll deal with it when I get older. I'll deal with it later. I'll deal with it in my next phase of life. But you know, in Romans 1, 24 and 26, we read that, that God delivered them over to their desires. That there was a point of, of rejection of God where God said, you know what, you want to worship those false gods? Just go. I'm just going to let you go. And there's a warning there, I think. Don't tell yourself you're going to take care of it tomorrow. Don't tell yourself, oh, I'll deal with it later. Again, in 1 John 5, 16, we know that there is a sin that leads unto death. That's not physical death, that's spiritual death. But the point there is, there is a reality where we can tolerate our sin, not as believers, but as unbelievers. We can tolerate sin to the point of, well, we just die in spiritual death, and that's it. We, may, we chose that road. We refuse to deal with it. And so, yes, the Lord is patient, but that patience will not last forever. So there is an urgency here to respond. Yeah, God says, repent or else. And if you don't feel the need to respond to that calling, then you don't believe God when he says, repent or else. This separation was so severe, it even led to worse. Watch verse 8 as the collapse of Judah continues. Jehoiakim, so you have Jehoiakim, and then you have Jehoiakim, his son, right? He was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Spoiler alert, short reigns are not good, right? We know this. His mother's name was Nehushta, daughter of Elnathan. She was from Jerusalem. We probably also get a little bit of a warning there in the fact that his, daughter, or his, his mother may have been named after that bronze idol that, that the Israelites had worshipped, Nehushtan. Anyway, verse 9, we get it point blank. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father had done. So then what happens? Well, at that time, now we're in 597. At that time, the servants of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. Second time here. In verse 11, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to the city while his servants were besieging it. King Jehoiakim of Judah, along with his mother, his servants, his commanders, and his officials, surrendered to the king of Babylon. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. Don't miss that. Uh, there in verse 12, Jehoiakim, the king of Babylon comes to the siege, okay? So it's all, it's all over, right? The, the king of Babylon shows up. Jehoiakim gets everybody in his household. We're talking Downton Abbey style. The whole crew, you know what I'm saying? Like the whole, all, all the servants, all the officials, the whole deal. And they all come out to the king of Babylon in Jerusalem, right there in the shadow of the temple of Yahweh. And what do they do? They bow to the king of Babylon. It was a public show of submission to say, we are your servants. This is the collapse of the kingdom of Judah. It's tragic. It didn't stop there, though. Speaking of the temple, watch verse 13. He also carried off from there all the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king's palace. And he cut into pieces all the gold articles that King Solomon of Israel had made for the Lord's sanctuary, just as the Lord had predicted. When was that? That was in 1 Kings chapter 9, 
verses 6 to 9. 1 Kings 9, 6 to 9. The Lord, he warned. He said, if you don't stay faithful to me, if you chase after false gods, then this temple is going down. Furthermore, in verse 14, he deported all Jerusalem and all the commanders and all the best soldiers, 10,000 captives, including all the craftsmen and metalsmiths, except for the poorest people of the land. No one remained. Nebuchadnezzar deported Jehoiakim to Babylon. He took the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the leading men of the land into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The king of Babylon uh, brought captive into Babylon all 7,000 of the best soldiers and 1,000 craftsmen and metalsmiths, all strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Metaniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. So we have another ruler who's gone into submission and been defeated by the Babylonians and now taken into exile. A crucial piece of this narrative is that the temple itself was plundered. And all that gold that had been used to make instruments to serve the Lord, and they were used for no other purpose, they were dedicated to the Lord. All that gold, all those treasures, they were taken. They were cut up, melted down, and turned into Babylonian jewelry for the king. Decorations for the king's palace in Babylon. You see, even the temple couldn't save Judah at this point. Which, that's actually also quite scary. To think about that fact, that, that even with Josiah as, as the previous king who did so much good and sought to lead the people in rejecting idolatry, here we are, and once again, it's come down to this, and the idolatry has continued, the false worship has continued, they still did evil in the Lord's sight. And even with the temple, because, you know, in, in its, ideally in its heyday, they could have repented and offered sacrifice, and there would have been forgiveness, but the temple's now been compromised. The temple couldn't save them. And the fact is, religion can't save anyone. And, and by religion, I mean a man-based means of seeking fulfillment or forgiveness. Religion can't save us. All right, we acknowledge the tough truth. God is the judge. His or else means something. And yes, we are sinners. We struggle with sin. Whether we are unbelievers and rejected him entirely, or whether we're Christians and we still struggle with pockets of resistance— but you need to know that once you come to see your sin for what it is, the answer isn't, all right, now I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to get to work. And I'm going to make God happy with me. And I'm going to work off this debt. You see, there's an old lie spiritually that you made the mess, therefore you clean it up. It's only half true. You did make the mess, but you can't clean it up. Religion can't save us. The temple couldn't save them. And so the temple being plundered in 1 Kings 9, the, the reason why the temple was plundered, uh, the, the prophecy there, the warning, says it was plundered because they abandoned the Lord God and they held on to other gods, false gods. And so there's this reminder that, listen, even, even our idolatry corrupts our attempts to pursue God. Whereas even if you thought, I really want to get it right this time, right? I'm going to chase after God. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to do something good to undo the bad that I've done. And I'd love to tell you that that's only a problem outside of the church, where other religions are literally, like, that's the system. Do these things, and then God will be happy with you. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, that that's just as much a problem inside the church as it is outside it. Think of it this way. Maybe your Christianity isn't Christian. Majority of Christians if you ask, in America, if you ask them this question, right, 
Um, how is someone forgiven in the sight of God? The answer is by, by doing good deeds. I get, I get my act together, finally follow those Ten Commandments, right? Whip myself into shape, and then God will forgive me. That's a lot of things. That's not Christianity. And so many people can walk into a Christian church and yet not be worshiping the Lord in, in legitimate Christianity. It's not actually Christian. All the while, they've abandoned God and we're holding on to our false gods. That language is instructive in 1 Kings 9 as it explains what we're reading here in 2 Kings 24. And again, we struggle with it. Those pockets of resistance in our lives, it's because we've abandoned God. We said, no thanks, God, and we turn to something else to fulfill us, to satisfy us. And then when we know we failed, we think, oh, well, I'll just go to church and endure another sermon. And then I'll get points for that. Double points for Pastor Ryan's sermons, right? I wonder this morning if you need to rescue your Christianity from religion. You know, you could ask this question. It's a really simple question just to help kind of expose if this is a struggle for you. Religion can't save us. But you could ask the question, why am I here? Why, why have I bothered to come to this gathering? What is it that I'm hoping to accomplish? And if your answer to that is in any way, I'm hoping to earn favor with God, I'm hoping to be forgiven because I've come, right? That's not Christianity. That's a man-based religion. And if the temple couldn't save Judah when Babylon came to town, then your religion, your works can't save you or me. We did make the mess. And yes, we cannot clean it up. And if you look at the conclusion here of the chapter, verses 18 to 20, we're going to see like the summary statement, and we're just back to the same fundamental conclusion here. Zedekiah, right? So now another one of Josiah's sons, Zedekiah, was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. Guess what? Zedekiah did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as Jehoiakim had done. Because of the Lord's anger, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he finally banished them from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Okay, work with me here. Zedekiah gets appointed king by the Babylonians. He is reigning as king. And then one day he decides, you know what? I'm done with the Babylonians. And just like the predecessors on the throne had done, he said, you know, I'm going to push off the Babylonians, maybe in favor of the Egyptians, whatever. He thought, we're tough enough. We can, we can, you know, we can do this. And so he rebels against the Babylonians. Why did Zedekiah do that? Well, I don't know what the political reasons were why, but I know that the main reason why was because God was making good on his or else. And Zedekiah rebels against Babylon, and what we will see next week is that Babylon comes back a third time and wipes out Jerusalem for good. And so there's this warning here. If you're not, if you're not paying attention when God says, turn to me, come to me, or else, you are stiff-arming the bold-faced truth. You see, the Lord is righteous when he judges. We've got to get there this morning. This is the word of God, and it's given for our instruction. And, and we got to learn this morning that the Lord is righteous when he judges. And we'll be tempted, most often we'll be tempted to look again outside these walls and go, yeah, Lord's righteous. He's going to judge them. I know some of you have people in your neighborhood. You're like, I can't wait 
So they get judged. You know, this, it's going to be amazing. Like, you know, you're like, or the famous people on TV or whatever, oh, they're going to get theirs, and I want to be there when that happens, right? But notice, as wicked as Babylon was, God's judgment started with his people. And I think there's a caution there. Be careful if you think you're a special case. And God's, God's, just, God's justice, his judgment is no big deal for me because of X, Y, or Z. And I don't have to heed that warning. That warning's for them. I just want to encourage you this morning. This warning is for us. The Lord is righteous when he judges. You know what Zedekiah's name means? The Lord is righteous. The Babylonians changed his name to Zedekiah because, again, they wanted to, like the Egyptians had done previously, they wanted to, uh, you know, baptize his reign in uh, the religion of the Jews. So like, oh, yeah, we'll give him a new name. And the name is the Lord is righteous. And the Lord is righteous in that he sent Babylon here. It's actually kind of interesting because they actually weren't wrong in that. The Lord is righteous. The name is correct. And the Lord is righteous in sending Babylon to judge Judah, no matter how uncomfortable that truth may be for us. Now, God hasn't promised he's going to destroy New Jersey, although that may be an incidental consequence of sin. But in Romans 3.23, we learn this, that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Lord is righteous when he judges. If you think that verse doesn't apply to you, well, you got another thing coming. Because falling short of the glory of God there means that we fail to adequately value God in our lives and live for his purposes. And the Apostle Paul says, we've all got that disease. We've all got that sickness. We all deserve God's judgment. And if we think we're special and we don't deserve it because, again, a fill in the blank, whatever it might be, we are mistaken. The Lord is righteous when he judges. But can I encourage you this morning that that's not the end of this story? The Lord is not only righteous when he judges, he is also righteous when he justifies. So we've got the failure of the line of David, seemingly, as we come now to Zedekiah. We've got the failure of the temple as the temple is plundered. We've got the Babylonians about to come one last time to wipe the whole city out, the whole kingdom out, and that's it. North and south will have been taken into exile, done. The whole thing came crashing down. The Lord is righteous when he judges, yes. But all of that failure points to the fact that God's promises then must be fulfilled in another way. There is yet another son of David to come. There's a greater temple to be built, not a physical temple, Right? But the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the greater son of David, Jesus who died for our sins as our great high priest, as the perfect sacrifice, and as the one who can actually truly take away our sin, take away our idolatry, pay for our failures, and then, even better, gift us righteousness. That's what the word justify means, to declare righteous, to declare clean, to say that there's no more basis for any accusations, that it's been done, it's a legal declaration. And yes, the Lord is righteous when he judges. We have to know that. But that leads to then the fact that the Lord is also righteous when he justifies, or when he rescues, or when he saves. Because the prognosis as of the end of chapter 24 is it's not looking good for Israel. It's not looking good for Judah. 
And if you're looking at your own life, you're, you're seeing your own failure, and again, maybe you've never trusted in Christ, or maybe you have, and you're looking at the repeated sin struggles that you have, and you're thinking it doesn't look good, you need to know that, yes, the Lord is righteous when he judges, but he's also righteous when he justifies. He is a rescuer at heart. And yes, sin demands separation from God, but let's just deal with our separation anxiety together this morning. Have you heard of separation anxiety? We had our first yellow lab, Dallas, many years ago in the 50s. And uh, Dallas, when she was a little puppy, she did not like to be separated from us. And that dog would whine and would grow crazy to try to get out of that little crate and all that. She wanted to be right with us. She was so concerned. She was fretting that we are never coming back when we left her. She was worried that when we went to sleep, I don't know what she was worried about, like we weren't going to get her. I don't know what, but she was so scared. She just wanted to be with us. And sometimes that's us, spiritually speaking. We have separation anxiety. Where even as believers, we're afraid God is going to turn his back on us. We're afraid he's really going to actually end up calling us into account for those failures and not going to count the blood of Jesus to cover it. We're afraid of that, right? We have that separation anxiety. Let's just deal with that together this morning. The son of David, the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he's the basis of our reconciliation with God. And so in Hebrews 4, we read about how we have this great high priest who passed through the heavens and who's the mediator to reconcile us to God. To what end? So that then in, in verse 16, we can go into the throne room of God and we have access to his throne of grace with boldness, the writer of Hebrews tells us. We don't have to... We don't have to fear separation from God. We can go confidently right into the throne of grace and we can receive mercy and find grace when we need it. Why? Not because of what we've done, but because of the greater son of David, the one that didn't fail, the one who was successful for us. Or we could go to Romans 5 and listen to the Apostle Paul as he says, therefore, by faith, you've been justified with God. Therefore, we have peace with God. But then he says in verse 2, we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have been reconciled to God because of Jesus, the greater son of David, the greater temple, the great high priest, our greater sacrifice. And because of that, we we have access to grace and we stand in it right now. We cannot be removed from that grace because we didn't put ourselves there in the first place. And so there's tremendous hope here as we look to the rest of the story of what God will do. And again, if you're here this morning and you're not taking the or else seriously, you're thinking God says repent or else, and he's not going to judge. Well, there's a warning here. Yes, the Lord is righteous when he judges. But when you come to understand that, you've got to learn the second part too, that the Lord is also righteous when he justifies. And he's not going to say your sin isn't a big deal. Sometimes this is how the gospel gets distorted in our culture. Oh, it's no big deal. Your sin's not a big deal. Just, he'll, God will just wink at it, and it's cool. You're good. That wouldn't be just. That wouldn't be right. The Lord is the righteous judge. So God looks at your sin, and he sees it for what it is, abandoning him, clinging to other gods, rebellion, idolatry. And then he says, I will pay for that sin on the cross with my son. And so Jesus is publicly crucified. Why? so that we can all know that God didn't wink at your sin or sweep it under the rug, that Jesus bled for your sin. And he died for your sin and for my sin. And he rose from the dead so that you could be reconciled, so that we could get back into the garden 
so that we could be finally in right relationship with God, and we would be in that relationship in such a way that we can never be taken out of it again. In this grace, we currently stand because of Jesus. He did what we couldn't do. He did what Josiah couldn't do. He did what we know Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim couldn't do, what Zedekiah couldn't do, what the temple couldn't do. He has made us right with God. So, so what? <laughs> so if you've, if you've never repented of your sin and turned to, turned to Jesus, you just need to know it's not about you cleaning yourself up. It's about trusting in him and what he's done for you. But maybe you're here, and as a believer, you're still struggling with that sin. Can I just, can I just encourage you to see the weight of what Jesus has done for us? The Lord is the righteous judge, and he's also righteous when he justifies That doesn't mean we have a cavalier attitude towards sin, like it's not a big deal. It doesn't mean we just go, oh, well, Jesus died for it, then it's cool, no problem. No, Jesus died for it. And therefore, the Lord is just and righteous to forgive me. Should I continue to sin so that there can be more grace? No way. Should I keep doing more just because it's free? No, it's not free. It's free to you. But our gift of salvation is more expensive than we will ever really know. So now we have this chance to respond in faith and say, I will now run with Jesus in that direction. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're kind of banking your spiritual identity on your performance. Or because you failed, you're like in depression. You're, you're, you're mourning your spiritual state because of your sin. I just want to encourage you that the Lord is righteous when he judges, but he is also righteous when he justifies. And if you've trusted in Christ, you are safe standing in God's grace. My friend John Calvin said it so succinctly. He said, our reconciliation with God depends solely on Christ. I'm going to say it again for you. Our reconciliation with God depends only on Christ. Not on how long you've been a Christian. Only on Christ. Not on how much Bible knowledge you have. Only on Christ. Not on how much you support the church. Your reconciliation with God depends only on Christ. Not on how well you behave. Not on how loud you sing or how well you sing. (laughs) Not on how many hours you serve or how many hours of serve you bank over the course of your life. Not over how many sermons you've heard. Not on how someone else is vouching for you. Not on your family history. Not on how much you've suffered. And not even on how often you've asked for forgiveness. Your reconciliation, my reconciliation in the sight of God depends solely on Christ. The Lord is righteous. He says, repent or else. And when he says it, he means it. When he offers us this gift of grace, he's offering us fulfillment peace, and a permanent place in his family. The Lord is righteous when he judges, but praise Jesus, he is also righteous when he justifies. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pause this morning as we confront what for our culture and for us many days is an uncomfortable truth the sure nature of your judgment of sin. 
And Lord, I pray for those who may be here or listening to this message who, frankly, do not take your or else seriously. They are banking on the fact that their sin is not that big of a deal or that you're not really going to judge. And Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, you would convict them of their sin today, that they would confess it as sin and that they would repent and turn to you in faith. Lord, as a a gathered body of believers, we confess together that many days we don't take our sin seriously. We laugh it off, we tolerate it, we justify it, explain it away. Lord, give us the courage that we need to agree with you that our sin deserves judgment, and it is not okay. But Lord, as we do so, may it not lead us into a works-oriented pursuit of forgiveness. May it not lead us into despair, but may it lead us to the cross where we see the greater son of David, Lord Jesus, you crucified in our place. Lord, may it lead us to the empty tomb because you rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And so now we can publicly declare that, yes, we are sinners, but we have been made saints because of your work for us. Lord, when we tolerate sin, when we justify idolatry, convict us. May we return to the cross. May we enter your throne room confidently and find the grace and mercy that we need. We praise you that we don't have to wonder if you're gracious. And we don't have to wonder if we've lost our standing before you because we stand in the grace that you have provided for us in Christ. So help us to live in light of these truths we ask. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.